Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But my first night in prison, Salem jail, back when they used to hang the witches, <laughs> literally, um, they took me in blue tear cell 10. They put me in a room with this 350 pound white guy and I was scared to death. I was terrified. I'd never been in a jail before in my life, and I was scared to death. And the guy, me and the guy started talking, and we started playing cards, and I beat him like out of a six-pack of soda, and I was feeling cool because I was a card player as a kid. And then he said, I'm not paying you. I sat on my bunk. I was like, wow, this guy's chumping me, but I don't know anybody. I don't know anything. I'm just going to shut up. And after like three or four hours of sitting on my bunk, I took the one soda can he gave me. I ripped it. I bent it to a ripped in half. I jumped off the bunk. I kicked him in the head. I put the soda can to his neck. I said, if you don't pay me, I will kill you. I said, you got me totally confused. I said, I will kill you. You will pay me or I will kill you flat out. And I just, I just couldn't take being robbed. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Andre, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Ah, oh, man, it's my pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it is my absolute pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about your story by way of uh, my friend Benjamin Hardy, who was a guest here on Unmistakable Creative, and he referenced you in his book. And your story just sounded so insane that I was like, we have to talk to this guy, all of which we will get into. But before we do that, I want to start by asking you, what religious or spiritual beliefs, if any, were you raised with and how did those end up impacting your life? Well, I was actually raised in a Christian family. And I just say my mom and my sisters and everybody went to, a, I guess, a, a Christian church. And I went for a little while. They, went to, well, they used to make us go. Then they stopped making us go. And then I didn't really like the people over there because just a lot of stuff happened 
between the leadership in the church and some of the um, female members of my family. And I just, as a little kid, it didn't sit right with me. Even though everybody was an adult, it was still out of order. So I just grew up with this real, real resentment, if not hatred, towards people who are in the church. Wow. So, because I just, they made me feel less than, and I couldn't defend, even though there was nobody being kidnapped. I just felt it was out of order, and I couldn't stand up because I was like a 10 year old or 12 year old. I wanted to say something, and I just couldn't. Yeah. So I didn't like, for the long time, for the longest time, I did not like church people. So, I mean, like, you know, my, my parents have become more religious as they gotten older. And, you know, I kind of had the same attitude that you did. Like, you know, for me, my biggest issue with all Indian religious traditions is that they're too time consuming. Like, just go to an Indian wedding and you'll see that. Uh, but I wonder, you know, for so many people, I, I've realized as I've gotten older that religion is often a source of meaning. It's a source of community. It's a source of connection. You know, most of my friends, uh, my parents' friends have also come from the people that they've met at a temple. And so I wonder, you know, in your life, then what did you replace it with to get that same sense of connection, meaning uh, and all those other things that other people get, you know, from going to church? Well, I don't know why they go. I know I didn't <laughs> go. <laughs> and I got my sense of community from the friends I had in the neighborhood and the, your friends as you're 10, 12, 13, 14 year old kids. It's the kids you go to school with. Um, it's yeah. the kids you play football after school with. It's the kids you hang out with. Then it's the kids you hustle with. So you we started hanging out and say the second and third grade playing football in the dirt. And we had this little group, we had a little football team. We played other streets, other parts of the neighborhood. We go play football games. We were probably like eight guys, nine guys on our team. And then we just grew up playing football in the dirt and then chasing girls and then stealing cars. And then it just, we were together since third grade. So those are the guys you live in your neighborhood proximity. So whoever mm-hmm. lived nearby and then whoever went to school with you, whoever ended up in your class. What was in yeah. proximity you had your same name? I mean, the basics. Then whoever was yeah. in the juvenile probation place that you got along with and whoever was in the county jail and whoever was in the state jail, who, who, who you align with. It's all proximity and neighborhood stuff. Hmm. You know, so the kind of neighborhood that you grew up in, to the best of my understanding, is not, you know, like the, the neighborhood that's like the best one. I mean, from what I understand, you grew up in poverty. But, you know, the thing is, when I talk to people like you, I always want to understand what I think are my misperceptions of the kind of neighborhood that you grew up in, because I think that you know, the perception of the kind of environment you grew up in for people like me is, you know, John Singleton movies, uh, which isn't entirely accurate. I know there's probably some accuracy to it, but what misperceptions do you think that those of us who grew up outside of environments like that have about environments like the one you grew up in? Um, well, you can take the guns, the stolen cars, the weed smoking stuff out. The thing that they don't show in those movies collectively is the the mental trauma that's put on people. So as a young kid, I was made to feel like I didn't matter. As a young kid, I was taught that I was second class. As a young kid, I was taught that I wasn't important. So it's for me, I remember the mental burdens and trauma way more than just like um, the bad neighborhood or guys getting shot or people hanging on the corner smoking weed. I mean, that's just becomes commonplace. People hanging in front of a liquor store, people hustling. That's just commonplace. I don't even really, those folks in my mind didn't as pack me in as much as the way I saw myself and the way I thought the world runs. So I had three basic lessons that I operated under. One, it's okay to hit people. As my mom got hit, anybody can get hit. Two, I'm going to protect myself because when kids threw rocks and names at us, when we rode the bus trying to get to school, nobody came to help us. And three, I can quit on anything I want because my dad walked out of the house 
I can walk out of the house. I can walk out of a situation. So it didn't matter if whatever it was, that was my lens. And the thing that they don't capture in the movie is that the lens that you generate or create from what you see and you experience. And those are things that really drive you. And for me, the lens that I had was it's okay to hit people. I can just beat people as often as I want. I can just quit whenever I want. And I became a professional quitter. I quit at sports. I quit at church. I quit at media. I quit at choir. I quit at trumpet. I quit at everything to the point where it left me no positive options, but negative options. So the movies is the movies. It's like a lot of folks. There's a lot of music, a lot of stuff happening, but there's a lot of trauma that they don't show. I mean, I had a friend, his mother used to drink and she used to bring men home. And when she would bring men home, he'd come up the street to my house. And we're like in the like fourth grade. So the first time he came by, I he told me. And after that, I just knew it was like uncommon. It was unspoken that, hey, mom brought some drunk. They're both drunk and they're doing whatever. And you got to listen to that. So he would just come down to my house. Uh, it was like four houses away. And that's just what we would do. And it was just like the trauma he had to suffer from living through that was definitely way more painful than being in the inner city. So I'm, I'm a trauma guy. Um, trauma yeah. d- doesn't go away versus like the neighborhood stuff. Nobody remembers them. People grew up in nice houses. They still get high. You know what I'm saying? They still go through stuff. So it's not the, yeah. no, of course. not the aesthetics. It's the environment. Yeah. Well, so speaking of environment, I mean, your dad leaving, um, what impact did that end up having on you and, and the choices you've made? And, and uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if you have kids, but I wonder if you do, how your dad leaving has <clears throat> would impact the way that you would raise kids. Well, the first thing, the biggest lesson was it's OK to quit. That was the biggest lesson. And I didn't even understand it at the time, but that's what I took from it. And he quit on me, then I can quit. So anytime something got hard or something got troublesome or something got too much, I just quit. Or something didn't go my way, it wasn't the right day, I quit. And I became a professional quitter. And like I said, that took me, that attitude took me all the way to prison because I kept quitting on all the positive options I had in my life to the point I only had negatives. Um, I do have a son, he's 15, and great kid, have plans. And I mean, I don't use the motivation of I'm going to be better than my dad because when you use a negative to, to force a positive, then a negative comes with it. So I just say, you know something? I know what he did good. I know what he did bad. And I just try to be the best I can for my son based on what I think he needs. Not, I mean, of course, we, we do things for our kids that we want it done for ourselves. That's any parent. But um, okay. I, I refuse to use I'm going to be better than my dad because it already starts me in a 50% negative place. And that's going to come out as well. So it's like, hey, I got a great kid. What does he like to do? What does he not like to do? And um, I just try to be there as a dad as best as possible. Yeah. Did you did you ever reconcile with your father or did you ever see him again? Oh, yeah. I've seen, oh, I, oh, definitely. I've seen him since. I mean, I talked to him a couple of days ago. He's 80 years old now and he's sitting at home, 80 years old, and he's old. He's by himself and he's lonely. And mm. unfortunately, I really can't help him with that. Because when I was in the first grade, he chose to go be with somebody else and raise their kids. And he left his four kids, I mean, I mean, on alert, whatever you want to call it. So yeah. he, he has relationships and bonds and great memories with that lady's kids, not us. And so now she's died. We're all grown. He's 80. And he's sitting home talking about, wow, where are my kids at? 
<laughs> he's like, I'm like, yo, you left us a long time ago. So I call him out of respect. I check yeah. in on him out of respect. I take calls from him out of respect, but I don't wake up in the morning and say, wow, I wonder how my dad's doing. We don't mm-hmm. have that type of relationship. It's like, yo, okay, he's technically my father, so I'll check on him. But it's not like we don't have an emotional connection because we never built one. Mm, wow. Yeah, I guess, you know, to, to me, I, I wonder what leads to enough of a level of forgiveness for somebody doing something so horrible to you as a kid that you're at least willing to say, okay, you know what? Because there are probably a lot of people who would say, you know what, to hell with this person. They bailed out on me. I'm not going to be there for them. Let them die. And yeah, yet I mean, you still call and check on him. So I, I wonder what is it, you know, emotional, like I know you mentioned you don't have an emotional connection with him, but at the same time, clearly you, you have, you know, gotten past it enough to be the kind of person who checks in on him. It goes back to the trauma. But like I said, many years, my motivation was to prove him wrong. I'm going to prove to you that I'm lovable. I'm going to prove to you that I'm smart. I'm going to prove you that I have value. And that's what drove me to prove to my dad. But I was doing it in all the wrong spaces. Some people do it on the football field. Some people do it in the science room. I did it in the street. But I was trying to prove to him that I could be lovable, wanting all the rest of that stuff. But um. I don't, I mean, it's basic courtesy, man. I mean, I, what I do for a living is I help people. So it's really hard for me to go around the world and help people and not communicate minimally with my own dad. You know what I'm saying? So again, can we, can we rebuild 53 years of absenteeism? I don't think so, but um, we can be cordial. Like he called, we had a call the other day and he started telling me something about, I said, listen, dad, let's do this. I'm a grown man. You're a grown man. Let's start there. He keeps trying to fix me when I was eight. I said, let that go. I said, you're grown. I'm grown. Let's start there. Let's not mm-hmm. go back to when I was 10 and you explaining to me why you left. Or you, when I was 12 and you're trying to explain to me why you didn't show up. That's over. Water under the bridge. I'm 53. You're 80. Let's start from here. And we can be friends from here. We can't be father, son, catch, catch balls in the park. Them days are over. Yeah. And because he kept trying to relive my childhood. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I got a kid that's 15. We're past that. So he, he he's trying to make up for stuff that he can't make up for. And yeah. it's unfortunate that he has to be home alone. But that's, like you said, that's the bed that he made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned the trumpet. I had to ask about the trumpet because I was a tuba player uh, and I knew the trumpet story to some degree. But let me ask you how you go from playing football uh, in the park with your friends to the trumpet to starting to get into trouble. What was the trajectory of that? Um, and also what ended up happening to your friends and to your siblings uh, over the course of your life? Played football on the street, played in the park. In elementary school, everybody's just playing. We yeah. get to middle school. That's when I found out I was poor. There was a lot of kids who had stuff that I didn't have and they told me about it. In middle school, you have to sign up for free lunch. You can't just be giving it like they do in elementary school. So there's all these indicators that Andre was poor, Andre was uncool, Andre wasn't up with the times, and kids tell you about yourself. Sixth grade kids are mean. Middle school kids are most mean planet. (laughs) I remember. I was catching hell. (laughs) There was no other way to put it. And then a friend of mine suggested we go to the park. We can sell weed after school. We we didn't really sell weed. We were the runners for the weed dealers. So we'd run back and forth to the stash and bring the guys five, six, seven bags of weed at a time. We make 40, 50 bucks, not a million dollars, but it was enough that I could go buy some cool pants. It was enough that I can buy a cool jacket. It was enough that before school, when we stopped at the store, I can buy popcorn and sodas and narrow and candy. 
And that stuff allowed me to fit in. So I, I got on that track of going to the park to make a couple extra dollars because that was available to me. I mean, it was just an option that was there for me that I could go to the park and be a runner for drug dealers and they'll pay me 40, 50 bucks to do it. And my mom didn't have 40, 50 bucks to give me every day. You know what I'm saying? So it was just my way of taking care of me. She's trying to take care of a household with six kids. So I'm mm-hmm. like, I, I, I got to make my own way. And I started. And then sixth grade, a teacher gave me a trumpet because everybody back in the days was in a band. So she mm-hmm. put me in a band, gave me the trumpet. And I just got good at it. I mean, I played. I mean, I had it and I just played it every day. It was before video games. It was before a lot of stuff, before Internet. So you played your trumpet. I just got really, really good at it. When I got to high school, my friends who weren't in band told me band was stupid and uncool. And they told me either get rid of the trumpet or get rid of them. So you got a 14-year-old kid who's on his own. He only has this group of friends. And they're like, they're going to get rid of me if I don't get rid of the trumpet. So I didn't have enough courage to say that this is my out. I didn't even know it was my out. It was just something that I did. So nobody yeah. really explained to me that this was my ticket out of poverty. This was my ticket out of trauma. This was my ticket to like another space in the world. I just saw it as something that I did. Nobody ever really sat down with me and explained to me Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie and none of that. They just I just yeah. played the trumpet. It's like playing mm-hmm. basketball and never hearing of Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Never heard of the NBA. You just played. And then one day somebody says, ah, oh, that's stupid. I didn't know there was an NBA. I didn't know there was a professional league. I didn't know there was a whole life that went beyond ninth grade band. So when they said give it up, I didn't have the the, the long-term vision to see where it could take me. So I'm like, yes, whatever. This is something I've been doing. I never, not that I didn't take it serious. I didn't know enough about it to know what I was walking away from. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've had professional athletes here uh, who are African-American. I've had, you know, artists, authors, um, many who grew up in, in circumstances very similar to yours. And I wonder, what do you think it is that separates the people who find their way out of poverty or see that path, the one that you had, you're out, and recognize the out for what it is and leverage it versus the the ones who don't, who end up victims of their environment? It's not, okay, I would say mentors. So if you're playing sports, you automatically have a coach. So you have an adult male in your life that's there, that's holding you accountable, that's helping you grow and be better, that has standards set for you. Even as a band member, I had a band coach, even though he didn't spend the type of time with me that a football coach would, uh, but had my band coach walk me through more of that. But I was like the only um, out of control kid in the band. Whereas, like, you don't have, like, a lot of thug kids in the band. So <laughs> yeah, I, I know. The <laughs> coach wasn't really equipped to deal with me. I wasn't supposed to be a great trumpet player. I was supposed to be, like, a great something else. And had I played football, that coach deals with adolescent boys who have high energy. And I had a nerdy band teacher who was super cool, loved Mr. Ellis. But um, he wasn't equipped to help me with my problems. So the people you see who end up ending up with mentors, coaches, people in their lives who can hold them accountable – I'm saying that makes a major, major difference. Let's take Muhammad Ali. He was just a poor black kid in Louisville. He ended up in the police station over a stolen bike, and the police officer took interest in him and taught him how to box. Mike Tyson, yeah. who was in jail for robbing and mugging people, and one of the coaches took him to the gym instead of taking him to solitary, and one of the coaches started mentoring him. He went and got custom model. Custom model was the difference in Mike Tyson's life. Two things. One, the person who introduced him to Cuss, <laughs> who saw enough to give him a chance. 
than Cus being willing to step up and, and help him guide his life. And I, I don't know the name of the cop who taught Muhammad Ali how to box, but um, you need that person who's going to walk you through. Because at 10, 12, 13, 14, you know what you know, which is nothing and compared to the world. So you got a guy who's 13 years old trying to navigate the world with limited experience, have no exposure. So you need that adult figure who can guide you through. It's not going to get you. I tell people falling in a hole is not a bad thing. Somebody has to teach you how to climb out. Yeah. So learning well, how to climb out of the hole is more important than skipping over the hole because you're going to mm-hmm. fall in a hole sooner or later. So that mentorship is, is immense and it makes a huge difference. And most of the people that you come across have probably had that person that they can point to. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. 
right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, you brought up police and you know i knew there was no way i wanted to get out of this conversation without talking to you about um you know race relations one uh, I wonder, race when you were, yeah, <laughs> I mean, fair enough is yeah, so well, like i said this is why i wanted to have you know i wanted to get the perspective from you because we get one perspective usually and we don't hear it from the side of people like you like i had chris wilson who told me about what it was like and he said you know people you know, he said people shot and the police wouldn't even show up half the time so one, like one, what did your parents teach you about what it meant to be black in America while you were growing up? You know, and what did you internalize that to mean? Um, and two, when you see what has happened, particularly over the last year, as somebody who has been through our entire criminal justice system, you know, in a way that most people don't, what do you make of it? I'll start with my first introduction to the police was a non-introduction. I watched my mother be beaten for years and nobody came to help her. So there was no saving grace or no agency out there protecting my mother. Didn't exist. And then you fast forward to when I'm now first grade, eight years old, white kids are throwing rocks at us and calling us niggers. There's no agency stepping up to protect us. So my first lessons about the police was they're not there to protect me or my mother. That's the first wow. lesson. If nobody told it to me. I just witnessed it. Nobody's protecting my mom. So I don't believe in an agency that's here to protect us because I don't see it. Then when they threw rocks and stuff at us, nobody showed up to help us. So there's no agency coming to help me. So when I found out what the police were, then I you go look at the tapes. The police were out there calling us niggas, too. So it's like, it's like, OK, they're not here to help us. And then when I became like fifth grade, sixth grade, I remember distinctly, I live in an all-black neighborhood, of course. At the bottom of my street, there was um, it was like a drugstore. This is back in the days when they had the, the soda fountains. And white people ran the drugstore. And the mob or whatever group they were from, actually, you go down there, it would be a building full of white people. They just sit around all day. They ran the numbers. They ran the drugs. They governed the neighborhood. And as our neighborhood was governed by an outpost of whatever these white folks were from, with the drugs and the numbers and the rest. And we were kind of like, everything ran through them. One of my first jobs as a kid was like riding on the, um, on a, on a globe truck, on a, on a, on a newspaper truck. The guy would pay us like 20 cents a stop or something. We'd run the newspapers off, but it was all centered around this one little enclave of white folks who governed all the criminal activity. And I remember later on when the black guys finally ran them out of town, but they were able to stay because they had police protection. Police protected them. If you did anything to them, the police would come back and retaliate. And you couldn't retaliate. You couldn't beat the police. When the police protection wasn't there because the police force diversified, the lights were coming on or whatever, then the blacks were able to run them out. And now the blacks are controlling all the criminal activity. So I don't see it as race relations. We live in a white country. And it's not good, bad, or indifferent. It's not like, I'm not trying to move to another country. I've been to Africa. I've been to Colombia. I've been to a lot of places. I'm not trying to live anyplace else, but we just generally live in a white country. Like today, I'm in Arizona. That's Mm -hmm. not good, bad, or indifferent. It's just a fact. 
I yeah. look at this yesterday. We had a gentleman go into a store in Boulder, Colorado and kill 10 people. I live there no in Boulder, so I know. Made, made no sense. It's horrible. No. That's 1,000% yeah. horrible, traumatizing. I mean, to the point where the White House is flying flags at half mast in like yeah. solidarity with the 10 families in the community. Now, I look at the city of Chicago. They had 800 murders last year. What is the differential? Why there's no flag at half mast? Why is CNN not out there? Why is Fox News not covering it? Why is the president not saying this is a tragedy? Tragedy. We've had 800 people murdered in a city. You're having 10, 20, 30, 40 people killed in a weekend, and it's acceptable. It's, it's culturally acceptable that 800 black people can be murdered in Chicago. It's completely acceptable that 30, 40 people can be shot in a weekend in Chicago and nobody covers it. Nobody, I'm not saying nobody cares, but nobody's really trying to change the narrative. Now 10 white people die and I don't want to see anybody die. We fly the white house staff at half mass. Black lives matter went to Washington, DC. There was police on every single corner. And when they had the, the insurrection or whatever you want to call it on January 6th, all I could think when I was watching those people storm the Capitol I said, if that was black people, it'd be a massacre right now. They had to pull out every gun. They had to blow us halfway across the mall and said, what did you think we were supposed to do? If we had rushed the building, 3,000 black people, it had been, we're disrupting Congress. We're unseating the country. It had been everything to justify killing as many people who came through their door as humanly possible. Yeah. And then I've been in criminal justice for a while. So aside from everything else, I watched whatever amount of people crash through this building, beat down the police, go into the building, run Congress and the vice president of the United States out of the building. And then they walked in and they all walked out. Where I come from, they surround the building. They arrest everybody inside. Why are they looking for people? You had them in the building. I've watched every police show, but in every police show, you can imagine. You surround the building. You arrest everybody inside. You don't have to go look for nobody. A third or half the people just will just let go. Oh, it's basic trespassing. No, if you're in a building and somebody gets murdered, you what they call joint venture on South Carolina, hand of one, hand of all. They have all these wonderful terms of you're with somebody. There are people on death row right now because three guys pulled up to the store. Two guys went in and killed the clerk. And the guy I didn't even know he's on a death penalty, too, because he was with them. So all these people rushed the counter. Rushed to um, the Capitol, went in, killed cops, beat up everybody, walked in, walked out. Why did they surround the building and just arrest everybody who crossed the threshold minimally? If it had been black people, there'd been a lot more bodies and everybody went and went out in handcuffs. I know police procedure. They did not follow it because yeah. they look at white folks differently than they look at black folks. I'm not upset about it. I look at black folks differently than I look at Spanish folks or Asian folks. I'm not upset about it. They're just facts. We live in two Americas. There's rules for white people and there's rules for black people. And I accept that. I'm not upset. I'm not I'm not complaining. I'm not lodging a lawsuit. I just accept and I have accepted since I was a child. There are two sets of rules. There's what you can do around white people. There's what you can't do around white people. There's what white (laughs) people can do. There's what black people can't do. It's just a fact. There's not a lot to it. Yeah, well, I'm not upset it, about yes. it. I just accept it. 
Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, Isabel Wilkerson wrote this amazing book called Cast. And I, you know, I brought this up on the show before, but I remember you going through that and looking at how policy was created. They, it's been, what, probably 50 plus years since the civil rights movement, and we're still having this conversation. Um, but she said, you know, if you look at actual policy and how it was crafted, it was literally written to basically, uh, you know, exclude African-Americans. Like, and you look at that and you're like, wow, that literally is a definition of systemic racism. Well, I mean, my thing is, this here. we go back to movements in the black community. You can say Malcolm X, you can say Mecca Evans, you can say Martin Luther King, you can do a bunch more. If you try to lead the black community into a better space, you got murdered. There are shows on Netflix now called Cointel Pro. They had actual agencies that were set up through the federal government and the FBI to monitor and watch black people to make sure that they don't rise up. So Fred Hampton was known as a black messiah. He's leading black people. He's feeding kids. Now, did they have guns? Sure. They're not running up on every militia. It has guns because, you know, some they look like us. They give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's I mean, yeah. I it's again, I'm not, I don't want you to listen to say, oh, he's up. I'm not upset. I yeah. understand where I live. <laughs> I understand who I live with. And I understand the rules. So as long as we can be honest about the rules, there will be from the other day about um women and men in the NWC, I mean, um, the NCAA tournament. The women's mm-hmm. stuff is a horrible and the men's stuff is top of the line. The truth is what nobody will say. The men generate millions of dollars and the women don't. <laughs> That's what so my roommate said when they were talking about that. Unequal? Why yeah. is it unequal? The men generate millions of dollars and the women don't. So that's why they treat the men better. I mean, I want the system. I got a friend who's a coach of South Carolina basketball team. I know her sister. I'm, I root for him. I watched the game last night. But I'm not confused as to why there's two systems. The men generate a lot more money than the women. So they put their emphasis. Is is it fair? Is it accurate? Is it the right thing to do? No. But is it true? Yes. Yeah. But I, I deal in truth. <laughs> I'm saying not like it'd be nice if everybody was treated equally. It's, I don't live in that world. I live in a world that men's basketball generates more money than women's basketball. So the people who govern pay more attention to where their money's coming from. Hmm. Now, it'd be I, nice if they took, so we're going to take 20% of this money and make the women's girls girls game better, but it's still not going to generate the money, perhaps. I don't know. It's unequal treatment, period. And I can tell you why. And anybody who watches basketball can tell you why. But now it's like, how could this be? Why are they getting such bad treatment? And they're not even getting, they're not even giving the girls COVID tests the way they're supposed to. They don't generate money. NCAA is about generating money. Yeah. So women's sports, they had to sue to even get the stuff that they're getting because they didn't want to give it to them. Everything the women have gotten had to sue for because they don't generate money. Yeah. I, I appreciate your candor. So let me, let me ask you this. So how do you go from, you know, dropping out of the band to selling weed to a hundred year prison sentence? And, uh, you know, what does the, the system look like? Because one thing that I distinctly remember, I had a, a lawyer named uh, Sean Askenazi here who now is a, you know, owner of a chocolate company, but he was a criminal just a criminal defense attorney. And he was telling me, he said, people take plea bargains all day long for crimes they didn't commit. He said the whole system would fall apart if people actually went to trial. Um, oh. And and often it's he said often it's because they can't even afford their defense. But for you, like 
what is it what is that process from you know the first sort of run in with the law to you know all the way to you know a hundred year sentence look like? Well, I was actually selling weed before I joined the band. So but, uh, <laughs> this is the thing. As a young black kid who gets arrested, who has an absentee father, an overwhelmed mom, and I walk into a court system, which immediately hands me a lawyer. My mother believes in the lawyer because he's a professional. And she believes that I didn't do anything wrong just because I'm her child. And then we get into this system she knows nothing about. Legalities and criminality is a whole world unto itself. So when you walk into this massive system, now you have black people going into the courthouse who used to be, used to be the place where they used to hang black people. You, in our opinion, oh, excuse me, in my opinion, the courthouse was where people met up so we can hang the black guy together. We, because if you used to catch him out and hang him out in the field, I'm mad because I didn't get a chance to watch it as a neighboring white guy. So it seemed like let's wait till the black guy gets to the police station or gets to the courthouse they have tons of um, scenarios where they dragged people from the courthouse and police stations and hung them. And it was the mob rule. So when you have a black mom walking into a building full of all white people, that's what it was in the 70s and 80s, who are now taking jurisdiction over your child, you just kind of, you're overwhelmed. You're not going to speak up. Your mom, they're not going to speak against the system. They're not going to tell white folks. I was taught as a white, you don't talk back to white people. You don't, get, you don't raise your voice to white people. It's just not permissible. My father, not my great-grandfather, not my great-great-grandfather, my father and my uncles and aunts were all born at home in the house because blacks weren't allowed to be born in hospitals when he was born. That's fact. So my father's not going to go from being born at home, being treated second, third, fourth-class citizen since a baby. Now he's going to walk into the courthouse and exercise what rights? This is a seat of power. In his mind, that's the one building he doesn't want to be in. So the whole stigma of black parents from my era walking into a courthouse is a bad scenario from the start. And then they don't understand any of the processes or the protocols or what's really happening. And they're trusting on somebody who doesn't have our best interests at heart. His job or her job is to defend or just get me through the process. So now when the judge and the DA says you need to take this, you take it. It starts with the arrest. The arresting officer can give you a pass and say, you know something? You had, a, you had one joint, you had um, whatever, whatever, I'm going to let you go. He arrests you. Then he writes up the charge. Then when the DA comes in, they either up the charge. So they scream. They take the charge for something basic. Then they make it, you got caught with, with weed in your pocket. You get to the courthouse, they make it possession with intent to distribute, which adds another five years to the sentence. Why is it dis- intent to distribute? Because now the DA has leverage to make you plead guilty. He didn't care that you weren't intending to sell it. He wants you to plead guilty. So he has to create leverage. And so what happens is, you know, you did it and you don't want to go against the system. You're trained not to fight the system. So if white people say you're guilty, you're guilty. That's it. That's the system I grew up in. Now, that system is somewhat changing. But at the same time, you take the kids out of New York City where they decided these five black kids rape this lady in the park, and we're going to make it so. And we're going to send them to jail. If anybody who listens to this podcast thinks that I'm crazy, they go to Google, put an exonerated black man, and then like two, three, four hundred stories will pop up. Guy did 36 years. Guy did 25 years. Guy did 18 years. And lo and behold, DNA said he didn't do it. Lo and behold, he didn't do it. Oh, the fingerprints didn't match. And I mean, you go to Google right now and put an exonerated black man. 
and it would just pop up like you put in last night's scores. And it's, it's like, okay, cool. And it's like one case, the guy was found guilty, sent to jail. He appealed because he asked for DNA. They wouldn't give it to him. DNA became available. So he won his rights to get the DNA. It took him, the courts had given, it took him 12 years to get the DNA from the, from the judge and the, and the district attorney. The judge retired. The DA was about to retire and they finally gave him the stuff. No longer took to prove he was innocent. 48 hours. But for 12 years, they said black lives don't matter in the larger scheme of things. So if you, we get the wrong black guy, no big deal. I mean, it's no big deal. Like the guy shot 10 people in a supermarket and they shot him in the leg. I can give you countless people who've been shot in the head for maybe having a cell phone. that looked like a gun. I don't want the man to die. I'm not happy. He's, he's not dead or whatever. Not happy. He didn't get killed, but I know too many black people who were dead because we thought he had a gun or we thought he looked dangerous or he thought he was going to do something. So you shoot for the head. You got a man with an automatic rifle who already killed 10 people, including the cop. You shoot him in the leg. I'm happy he's alive. I want that for us. Shoot us in the leg. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh, so what actually led to you ending up with a 100-year sentence? Um, two, what are the misperceptions that you think we have just from, you know, seeing media? I, you know, like I said, I, I've definitely talked to probably half a dozen people who've actually served time, and I'm always surprised by how much I learn from them. Uh not only about my misperceptions, but, you know, and I've also, you know, had an opportunity to visit San Quentin because we had one of our former podcast guests who started a tech incubator inside of San Quentin. And I remember these guys showing me all the apps they had built and all this stuff. I was like, wow, even I can't do any of this stuff. That's mind blowing to me. Um, but, you know, one, actually, better yet, tell me about the first night in prison, like how you got there and the first night. Let's start there. The way I got there was I started robbing people. I used to sell drugs in the park. I started robbing people who sold drugs in the park. It was just so much easier to rob the drug dealers and didn't have to stand in the park. I stand in the park all day. I make money. I can come down in 10 minutes, take everybody's money and be gone and then have to do any work. It was just so much easier taking money from drug dealers and actually selling drugs. So that's why I started doing it. I started taking the money from drug dealers. because It was just so much easier. It was more lucrative and you worked a lot less. So that's what I started doing. And as I got older, I kept finding new ways to rob drug dealers. I actually went to jail for armed home evasion and the house I robbed was a drug house. Um, I got charged with armed robbery of a motor vehicle. I stole the car to go do drug house robberies. So I robbed drug dealers and I stole stuff, cars to go rob drug dealers and I had guns to rob drug dealers. So when I got to court, it, they started giving me sentences, seven to 10, two, nine to 10s, two 10s, two 15 and 20s and a five. So when I got to prison, um, I got into the culture of um, staying alive and dominating. And I got two attempted murder convictions while I was in prison and had an additional 10 years added to my sentence. Wow. But my first night in prison, Salem jail, back when they used to hang the witches, <laughs> literally, um, they took me in blue tear cell 10. They put me in a room with this 350 pound white guy and I was scared to death. I was terrified. I'd never been in a jail before in my life, and I was scared to death. And the guy, me and the guy started talking, and we started playing cards, and I beat him like out of a six-pack of soda, and I was feeling cool because I was a card player as a kid. And then he said, I'm not paying you. I sat on my bunk. I was like, wow, this guy's chumping me, but I don't know anybody. I don't know anything. I'm just going to shut up. And after like three or four hours of sitting on my bunk, I took the one soda can he gave me. I ripped it. I bent it to a ripped in half. I jumped off the bunk. I kicked him in the head. I put the soda can to his neck. I said, if you don't pay me, I will kill you. I said, you got me totally confused. I said, I will kill you. You will pay me or I will kill you flat out. 
And I just, because the whole thought of being, I, I didn't think about prison culture or nothing crazy. I just got, I just couldn't take being robbed. I robbed yeah. people. And then that happened and it gave me status. And it was like, it was some, some gangsters in the prison. One day, some guy threw some water off the tear and he got on the guy downstairs. And the guy yelled up to his friend, hey, fucking the spook threw water on me. And the guy ran up on me and he grabbed me. I'm like, I literally didn't do it. And he starts cussing me out. He's yelling at me and I'm just standing there taking it. One, I have this mindset. You don't fight with white people. Two, I'm in prison. I don't know what the hell's going on. And three, this guy's wrong. So I don't know why he's yelling at me. And I'm just standing there while he's cussing me out. Had he just walked away and said, you better not do it again. And just walked away. I'd have been marked for like all kinds of problems. I'd have been weak. I was a coward. I was a chump. I got disrespected. I'm a, I'm soft. I probably got robbed, beat up 20 minutes later. Then he did something he shouldn't have done. He put his hands on me. He grabbed my shoulder or something. When he grabbed my shirt and he started putting his finger in my face. As soon as he grabbed my shirt, my mind snapped out of it. Like, I know what to do now. I know what to do with the old white guy yelling at me. But when you put your hands on me, I know what to do. I grabbed his shirt and decided to punch. I punched him like 35 times in the same eye. Dislocated his eye. He's on one knee. I'm trying to rip his head off. Now I'm like, okay, I'm celebrated because I mean, for the first six, three, four minutes of it, I just stood there like a chump. And when he grabbed my shirt, I snapped in the auto auto response. Somebody puts their hands on you, you beat the ass. So I started beating them. Now I'm sorry. Now I, I didn't, I didn't got the first guy and I got the second guy. And I started seeing, Hey, violence works in here. And I just started putting together a team. We started extorting people in the prison. You had to pay to live on our team. We started beating people up, making them pay to live on the tears. And then the, the CEOs supported it. <laughs> the CEOs were like, hey, we don't like that guy. So we beat the guy up for the CEO. And they just, we had a, the CEOs had the thing. Whatever the toughest gang is, they work with them yeah. instead of working against them. So since we ended up with the toughest gang now, we had all kinds of latitude from the CEOs and the staff to do stuff just because we actually ran the jail on the inside. But my yeah, first I mean, game, terrified. Wow. So how long did this uh, pattern of, of violence continue? And, and, you know, two, when you are staring at, you know, a hundred year sentence, it's pretty clear that, hey, I'm probably going to die in this place. Uh, and I'm sure that you probably met lifers inside of a prison. And I remember, you know, Joel who dropped 30 banks. He said the safest people in the prison are actually lifers. Yeah. Uh, you well, never re- think that, but um, which may or may not be true based on your experience. But uh, how do you how do you feel like how do you find the sense of meaning and, and feel that there's any purpose to living? Like, I, I, I think that to me, the most absolutely terrifying thing in the world is to potentially end up in prison just from the stories I've heard. I like, but, yeah, I think I would kill myself before I let that happen. But the thing is, is where you're coming from. You're coming from a stable life with a stable place and a life and kids and a job and an income and you pay taxes and you take trips. I'm coming from abject poverty. I'm in the streets every day. I'm going back and forth to the police station. I'm going back and forth to juvie. By the time I get to prison, I've been geared and raised for this. So it's like, if I just took you and threw you on an NFL football field, it's going to hurt the first time somebody runs into you. But if you've been playing since Pop won a football, it's nothing. You, 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 yeah. You're built for this. So you're not built for prison. I was built for prison. I went through all the trauma in the house, then all the trauma in the neighborhood, then all the trauma in public school, then alternative school, then juvie, then the county. By the time I got to the state prison, it was just like a natural transition. And I was in the county jail, and I, I, I actually had a robbery. 
I robbed, I went to town. I robbed somebody for their car. Then I went out and did a robbery in the car. Then me and my girlfriend was riding around in the car. We got arrested in the car. And so when they caught me in County A in the car, they charged me with stealing the car. And I paid bill. I went home. They send the information to where the car came from. Say, hey, we found your car and we're going to send it back. They said that car wasn't stolen. It was robbed. It was taken in a robbery. So they send my picture in the county where I took the car from. They charged me with armed robbery. I'm in court. I'm in jail. I have two pieces of paper. One says larceny. I stole a car. The other one says armed robbery. I stole a car. I went to my lawyer. Now, I'm not just, I'm, listen, I'm a high school dropout. I went to my lawyer. I said, listen, I'm looking at these two pieces of paper. They're the exact same. The only difference is one says robbery, one says larceny. Is this double jeopardy? I mean, everybody knows double jeopardy. And he looked at me, looked at the papers and told me no. Then he ended up taking me to trial and losing my trial and getting me 10 years. But I happened to plead guilty to the lesser case because my girlfriend was attached to it. I wanted her to go home. I go up on appeal. The appellate court said unequivocally, Commonwealth versus Norman, this is double jeopardy. Reverse my case. I could have went home. I should have never went to prison. My law, Had my lawyer done his job, I'd have never went to prison. He could have looked at these and said, yep, we're going to take you down the county. You're going to plead guilty. You got probation. It's going we go to trial. He should have filed a motion and dismissed the second charge saying he's already been tried and convicted for this, Your Honor. Double jeopardy. It has stood. I would have never stepped foot in prison. But my lawyer looked right at basic paperwork that a high school dropout could figure out and lied to me. Then sold me down the river. And since I've been home, he reached out to me and he, he apologized. He apologized. You know what I'm saying? And he said, hey, let's go to lunch, man. I'm sorry. I did you wrong. I just want to make up. I'm a Christian now. And I'm like, I accept your apology, but no, we don't need to go to lunch. Mm. I mean, so had this white man, for the, for the record, said, I'm going to do my job. And, it, and he actually never went to prison. Now, I did the crimes. I, went, I, I did all the crimes. It wasn't mistaken identity. But had he looked at that and just said, OK, look, we're going to plead you guilty to the, to the lesser charge, take your probation and dismiss the state charge. He didn't do it. It wasn't his concern. His concern was sending me to prison. And he was my lawyer. <laughs> mm. So when my wow. lawyer is trying to send me to prison, what is a district attorney necessary for? Yeah. And I mean, again, I did the crimes. So I deserved the punishments. But by law and by had I been a rich kid and I had parents with real lawyers, they'd have looked at that. They would did it the way it should have been done. Plead them guilty in the lower court. Get the higher courts dismissed, and I done went home, and nobody would have blinked. But my lawyer's like, he doesn't matter. Send him to prison. No. My lawyer. So, you know, this is, you know, I, I know how this story ends. I mean, the the trajectory is remarkable. I mean, I remember when I literally I read the words "prison to Harvard." I was like, I have to find this guy. Like I, the minute I had that, I was like, okay, we have to have this guy on the show as a podcast guest. So, one, you know, how long was it before something changed, and what prompted the change that made you think, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to stay here, especially with you know something like a hundred year sentence you know, Harvard, even for a kid in high school who's get a, you know, perfect scores in SAT, Harvard is a long shot. And you decide from, you know, a hundred year prison sentence that you're going to go to Harvard. I mean, I was in prison when I got to prison. Um, prison is governed by dangerous and mean people, for lack of a better term. 
And I wanted to be one of the bosses. I wanted to be the boss. So my goal was to be the number one guy in the system. So I have been kicked out of nine different states, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Indiana, um, Alabama, um, Texas. I've been shipped around the country. Massachusetts, nine months kicked me out. Pennsylvania, two months kicked me. I went all over the country just fighting and fighting and fighting and getting in trouble. I ended up in solitary confinement with two attempted murder cases, 10 years added my sentence. And I thought I was winning because I had accepted this is my space in life and this is where I'm going to be. Then I had an epiphany moment that I was a king of nowhere. And I realized that I was a king of nowhere. I mean, okay. And I said to myself, that's why I say to people, Andre, if you're really the king, you're really the boss, do for yourself the one thing you really want done. Go home. And I couldn't let myself out. I said, and he said, and you're not the boss. You're not really the boss. You're the make-believe boss. You've created this narrative in your mind that isn't real, and you're trying to live it out, and it's not real. And I can show you it's not real. And I showed, I was demonstrated, you're not the boss. You're really not the boss. So I said, okay, I can't be the boss. I shouldn't want to be here. I said, if I want, first, I said, I want to be free. Six, first time in six years, I said the words, I want to be free. My first six years of being in prison, I never once thought about going home. I was completely content staying in prison. And I said, I want to be free. So I looked around at the white guys, the black guys, the Spanish guys, the church guys, the basketball players, the chess players, the guys who did this, the guys who did Nobody went home and stayed free. Everybody came back. And I said, free doesn't work. It's a trick. I don't want to go for the trick because it's not working. I said, well, who doesn't come to jail? I said, successful people. I said, okay, well, where do they come from? College. So I said, I'll go home, go to college, be successful. I had to pick a school. I picked Harvard University. I'm from Boston. I used to ride my skateboard in Harvard Square. It's the only school I knew the name of. (laughs) It's literally the only school I knew the name of. So I picked that school. And everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody thought I was like lost my mind. But I said, no, this is it. I'm going to go home, go to college, be successful. And I'm going to go to Harvard. And then everybody thought I was crazy. But I, I believed. And I wrote down my plan on how to go from the basement of a prison to Harvard University. I started working every single day, 20 hours a day on that plan. And even though nobody else believed or saw it, it took me eight years teaching myself how to read, teaching myself the law, teaching myself anger management, going to self-help groups, going to college behind walls, going to pr- different programs, going everything that wasn't nailed down, stopped hustling and fighting in jail, got rid of the knives. I started doing everything the right way for eight years, not eight weeks, eight years. 20 hours a day, I worked on this. And I finally got out of prison. And I got out of prison. I started day one. I went prison, parole office, youth center. I started going to youth centers and helping kids, helping them understand how they can turn their lives around and do better. And I told them, I said, you're going to jail because you've been traumatized, not because you're black, not because you smoke weed. You've been let down and disappointed and you act out because your feelings are hurt. At eight and nine, it's cute. At 13 and 14, it's criminal. Let me show you how to process your emotions and be a better person. First, it was black boys and it was black girls. And I went and started helping white kids. White kids cut themselves. They have drunks in their families. They drink. They do drugs. They got bullies. They don't do well in school. I thought white kids were all perfect because I watched, grew up watching the Brady Bunch. And the white kids at these schools aren't from the Brady Bunch. And some of them do live in big houses, but they have bad families or bad family dynamics. So I started helping everybody. I ended up in Guatemala and I'm in Costa Rica. Now I'm in Sweden. Now I'm up there. I'm just, my thing was, if you call me, I'll show up. And that's what I've been operating under. 
And I just said, I'm just going to keep going. And then in 2016, I got the call from Harvard and they wanted to do business with me. And they said, well, what do you want? I was like, so I'm like top guy in social justice. I'm working in Ferguson and all the rest of this stuff. And they're like, yeah, what do you want? I said, I want a fellowship. I said, I want a fellowship. And they gave me one. Dr. Charles Ogletree, who raised up Barack and Michelle, gave me a fellowship at Harvard Law School. And it was 25 years when I got the email, A. Norman at um, hsu.harvard.edu, whatever it said exactly. And I was like, 25 years. I've Since I came home from prison, I've worked at the White House. I've worked at Congress. I've worked at London Business School. I've been I've worked at MIT. I've worked in 30 different countries, but I never quit on my goal or my dream. Don't let somebody else redirect your goal and dream. And it took me 25 years, but I got there. And when I got there, I was just, it was like, I cried that day. They gave me that email. I ain't gonna lie. And it was just like, I started to send anybody an email to say, look at me, look at me. And I thought about it. Nobody believed. I said, the hell with them. I'm not sending anybody an email. This is for me. I didn't do this for them. I did this for me. And um, mm. it, it was like a great accomplishment. And in my life, people have goals. And I work with people, entrepreneurs, business owners, athletes, and they all have goals. My goal is I'm going to die. And when I die, they're going to put a tombstone on top of me. I'm working for what they're going to say on that tombstone. Right now, it's going to say Harvard Fellow. It's going to say Honorable Son. Because it was a few years ago, I went to my mom, because my mom's number one issue in life is, are my kids going to be okay after I leave? And I've made enough money, and I've done enough good stuff that I could say to my mom, I will take care of my brothers and sisters after you're gone. There will be nobody homeless in our family. There will be nobody destitute in our family. We have enough money saved up through the stuff that I've done that your kids will be okay. And I helped my mother with her biggest issue in life. Her kids will be okay after she left. And for my dad, what I did, he's from Petersburg, Virginia, a small town in VA that was really tough to grow up in during Jim Crow South. I went back to Petersburg where I got, I hated hearing his stories, but I went back to Petersburg. I worked with all the people, did a a whole two weeks of outreach. I've been going down there for like the last three and a half, four years now. Went down there, did yeoman's work for like two weeks straight, did everything for free. And when it was all said and done, we sat in the office. I said, it's time to pay up. I called my dad on speakerphone. And the first person said, hi, my name is John Smith. I'm the mayor of Petersburg, Virginia. And I want to thank you for your son's work. Hi, my name is John Smith. I'm the police chief. Hi, I'm John Smith. I'm the fire chief. Hi, I'm the school superintendent, all from the town he grew up in. And they all thank my father for me coming in and doing the work that I've done. They sent him this giant plaque, him saying, on behalf of the city. Um, he grew up there. He loved that place. He hated the place. I didn't know anything about the place, but I went back there for him. And I wanted to say, okay, I'm doing this for you. We can't be cool, but I can go to your hometown and make your name good again our name good again. So it's going to say Harvard fellow, honorable son. And now I'm working on my next, my next little chisel thing is um, ending slavery. My goal is I want to end slavery in this country. We had a thing called the 13th amendment, which allows the constitutionally to lock people up and enslave them. If you can say they committed a crime. Now back in the seven, when slavery first ended, loitering was a crime. Vagrancy was a crime. This was say it would, like you couldn't put them on a plantation, so you give them a little misdemeanor crime, and you can sentence them to two, four, five years of hard labor, which is free labor, slavery. 
And since yeah. slavery's ended, all these civil rights and different movements and Barack Obama, now President, Vice President Harris, we've been tearing down the house of slavery. My goal is to get that 13th Amendment changed where it doesn't say you can incarcerate somebody under the pretense of slavery if they commit a crime. I want to take what is deemed the last bastion of slavery, mass incarceration, and throw that last brick into the ocean. I, I believe if you rob somebody, you should go to jail. I believe if you've committed a crime, you should go to jail. But let's not take an eight-year-old kid, not educate him, leave him in abject poverty, give him drugs from outside of the country, then come in over police and arrest him for being what we created him to be, and then send him to jail. And during COVID, I think 30% of our prisons have emptied out. So you've been keeping all these people in this prison for all this time, working at max capacities. When COVID came, it showed that you didn't need to keep these people in jail. COVID came, you started kicking people out by the dozens, by the thousands. And there's no mass crime wave. There's no mass crime wave. You let out 30% of your prison population and there's no mass crime wave. So holding people in jail is not a prerequisite. It's an intentional act. So why are we keeping people in jail? Because we don't want to, we don't want them in society. Who don't we want in society? Black and brown men. 4% of the country is black men between the ages of 18 and 35. Those 4% make up over 40% of the prison system, which doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I want a Harvard fellow, honorable son, last brick in the ocean on my tombstone. Wow. Y'all keep trying to make buy a boat or a plane or a Bentley. I'm walking <laughs> plus one on my tombstone. I'm nobody. My kids are not going to sit around and say, what should we chisel on dad's tombstone? I'm not leaving that up to them. I'm taking yeah. control of what goes on my tombstone. And right mm-hmm. now I got Harvard fellow and honorable son. And I'm wow. working on some more shit. <laughs> I love it. That's how um, I live my life. So I, I do have, you know, a question about the period of both of, of sort of your, you know, moment of redemption as well as coming out of prison. So you have this you know, sort of moment in which you make a drastic change where you go from being sort of this, you know, violent person who everybody looks up to, to, hey, I'm done with all this nonsense. I'm going to be, I'm heading to Harvard. What does that do to your friendships? Like these people are the ones who I'm guessing are the ones that you have been closest to this entire time. Uh, so how does that dynamic change? And then the other question I have is about actually coming out because you you mentioned so many people end up back there and I've had other people who told me that coming out is actually much harder than going in. Uh, like one of our, our former guests said, you know, when you come out, everything just feels overwhelming. Like she was telling me she couldn't even go into a grocery store because she had not seen that much stimulus. Um, so she had to be very mindful about stores she went into. She said it was much harder than you think coming out. Um, but then the other thing is, you know, you look at recidivism, uh, and I, I very distinctly remember this moment. I was, it was the day that we went to visit San Quentin, you know, and of course, like there's all this protocol and procedure just to go inside the prison as a visitor, as you probably know better than anybody. Um, and while we were waiting, a guy who had served a sentence for 30 years walked out of the gates and he had somebody there to, to take him home. And, uh, you know, and I, I remember that night I had dinner with a former podcast guest who had also been in San Quentin. And I remember telling him the story. He said, wait a minute. He's like, uh, do you have a picture or anything? He's like, oh my God, I know this guy. He was like, thank you for telling me. But, um, you know, from what I understand, people are set up to fail when they come out. Like we don't have structures and, uh, regulation to actually, you know, set them on a path that doesn't put them back where they're at. Okay. Well, I'm going to cover the first question. My friends, Initially thought I was crazy. 
They went thought I lost my mind, and they thought Dre just snapped. People snap every day in jail. I mean, they just lose. A lot of people just go crazy, and they just start doing a the, doing the shuffle, and they start hearing voices. So people thought I, Andre hit his wall. He went crazy initially. Then when I started making momentum, people were like, okay, we're seeing them, but we don't think it's going to work. It's never going to work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Then when I walked out of jail, when I actually walked out, it gave people permission to try the same thing. So prior to me, there was it, 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 he's crazy, it'll never work, it's stupid. And then when it, boom, it worked, now everybody wants to do it. So I talked to my mental health counselor, I talked to my GED teacher, enrollment went through the roof the day I walked out of prison. Went through <laughs> the roof. Because if you got that guy out of here, let's go back to Jackie Robinson. He wasn't the best baseball player. And when he got through, when he got through, then everybody's like, well, if Jackie can go, I can go. And if he can do it, I can do it. It gave permission to other people to try to better their lives because the system is designed to destroy you. The system is designed to beat you down. It's only in the last 15 years they come up with this concept of reentry and we want to help people. No, you don't. In theory, you do because it's public pressure. The public is saying, you've been holding these people for 10, 20, 30 years. What are you doing? We're coming home and killing everybody. So they had to come up with the concept of reentry. Now you're asking the people who are tasked with holding you and torturing you as to helping you. So I ask you this question. If I took you to the Middle East someplace and some Al-Qaeda group snatched you up and threw you in a prison, how many years would you have to be in that prison before you trusted them? Um, <laughs> well, God forbid that I ever end up in this situation. No, no, Probably I'm, a long time. I'm, no, no. How many years would you need to spend as an American citizen, a good blue, red, white, and blue guy in an Al-Qaeda prison before you trusted your captors? I don't think I ever would. That's what you're dealing with in America. You have black people who've been raised up in a system where they've been oppressed and beat down. Now you're throwing them into prison. Now they're saying, when are you going to, tr- we need you to trust us. For the last 50 years of incarceration, we've been oppressing and dominating and crushing you. Now we need you to trust us. The fact that you might be here illegally, the fact that you might be here is innocent, the fact that we've been beating the shit out of you for 20 years, the fact that we've been doing whatever to your communities for forever, forget about that. I need you to trust us because there's social pressure on us as corrections to say that we're helping you. You're not going to get inmates trusting staff. It's just not going to happen because there's too much history there that says you can't be trusted or you shouldn't be trusted. So you're asking the people who they distrust the most, that they should trust them. This is why recidivism is so high, because there are programs. I want people to be clear. There There are programs in jail, but the people don't trust the programs. No more so if I took you to an Al-Qaeda camp and left you for three years and said, hey, they're going to teach you how to read now in Arabic. They're going to teach you how to do this. They're going to teach you how to do it. Even if you do go, you're not going to trust none of it. You can't. You know, there's, a, there's some kind of trap door or something I'm saying not bad about this somewhere. There's something negative about this someplace in here because you just inherently don't trust the, the, the enemy. And for young black kids who take the criminal justice route, not all black kids, police and law enforcement is the enemy. So if you're a young black kid and you're in a criminal way, law enforcement is the enemy. So now I'm being held captive by my enemy and I'm supposed to trust my enemy hard, uh, if not impossible. So my friends are trying to now we didn't trust them. 
And I, you don't really need to trust him to get the services, but it is a roadblock in that relationship space. So what I've been when I came home, it gave my friends permission and other people permission to try the services, but not establish relationships. And since I've been home, one of the first things your friend was right. When I came home, there's talking cars, there's talking phones, there's white people jogging through my neighborhoods, all kinds <laughs> of stuff. And I went my first day out, prison, parole office, youth center. I went in to go to youth center to talk to the kids because I promised them that I would because I was running a program at the state prison with the kids from juvie. When I walked in the youth center, you know what I saw? You know what I felt? It was a locked facility. These kids were in a locked facility. And when I walked in and go talk to them, guess where I was? Inside of a locked facility. And I felt at ease and I felt at home because I understood being in a locked facility. So every single day for like the first three weeks, I would go up to the juvenile center to volunteer, mainly because I wanted to help the kids. And secondarily, because I knew how I could feel, feel safe in a locked facility. Nothing was going to be talking to me. Nothing was going to be moving. It was going to be nobody jogging by with a dog. I'm in a locked facility and I feel comfortable here. So I would volunteer so much. It was pathetic. They thought I worked there, but that was my decompression time. I could go in here and for these two or three hours, I'm safe because I I understand the spacing because the mental trauma of being locked in a facility institutionalized for 14 years didn't walk away the day they let me out. So I needed to go to the juvie center and volunteer so I could feel safe for three, four hours a day because I'm overwhelmed at every turn. My phone, cell phones, cars, <laughs> people going and coming, is all kinds of stuff happening. I couldn't keep up. But yeah. I, what I would do is go to the center for three, four hours and just hang out. Sometimes I say in the six, seven hours. Because I knew when I was in that, that locked facility, juvenile or not, I was in an atmosphere and a space that I understood and I felt safe. And over mm-hmm. time, I let that go. And another thing I used to do, I literally... I'd be sitting in my bed 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, and I'm having anxieties about being free. I'm having guilt about my friends. Still, I would get in my car. I would drive out to the prison, which is only 45 minutes outside of the city. And I'd sit up on the highway. And I, from the highway, I could see the prison. I could see over the prison wall. And I could see like the, the, the commissary. I could see the, the laundry where I used to work. I could see the housing units. And I'd sit up there for like an hour, hour and a half in the, out on the highway, just looking at the prison. I knew who was in what cell. I probably did that like four or five times. I would just drive out to the prison and sit up on the highway and just sit there, 11, 12, 1 o'clock at night. And just, I felt connected to my folks because that's where I grew up. That's exactly, I grew up in that building. And all my friends are in that building. All my memories are in that building. So it was probably a good four or five times I drove out to the prison and just sat up on the highway and just sat there. Didn't go near the wall, didn't go, just sat there. And felt connected to my to the folks that I had left behind. So between driving out to the prison and going to the juvenile center, that's how I got over my being overwhelmed when you come into society. Because now you're taking a person who didn't get an education, who has immense trauma, who has no skills, who's been in prison and traumatized and institutionalized for 10, 12, 14 years. You're throwing him into a world moving a thousand miles an hour. When he left, it was moving 20 miles an hour. And he couldn't keep up then. Now you're throwing him in the world that's moving a thousand miles an hour. He definitely can't keep up now. And it's like you go to what you feel comfortable doing. So you go around the people in the places where you feel comfortable. You're saying those are probably bad places, which leads to, okay, did anybody help me with my trauma in jail? Probably not. Did anybody help me 
Well, anything else in jail? Probably not. And it's not just the physicality. Prison is about mental. People, there's three types of people in prison. There's a 10% who govern, the leaders. There's a 60% who are the rank and file, the soldiers. Then there's 30% of people who get abused, raped, and beat just for waking up. They're the victims. Now, when one of those three guys, all three of those guys walk out of prison, the guy who was the leader, he has a, not a false sense, but he has a sense of how he should be talked and treated, but he walks out, you're nobody. It's like a freshman going to college. You, you're nobody. I don't care how cool you were at your high school. You're nobody. And that nobody thing is hard to contend with when you've been somebody for so long. Your word governs life or death. Now you're nobody. Get on the back of the bus. Get out of the way. Do you have this? Do you have that? So that's a culture shock. Then there's the soldier who's been taking orders from the boss for 10, 15 years. He needs somebody to tell him what to do. Now he has to figure it out by himself. He doesn't know how to figure it out. So he's floundering because he's looking for commands and there's no commands. So he's stuck. He take the person who was raped, beat, and robbed for, for 10, 15 years. He, he needs immense therapy. He's, he's a victim. He's been tortured for 14 years. He woke up every day for 14 years. Someone, is it going to happen to me again today? Is it going to happen again today? And now you let that guy out and somebody's patting him on the back. To him, oh, you're a tough guy. You did 14 years in prison. You're a warrior. No, you're not. I'm saying there's three levels of people and there's three levels of trauma and there's not one size fits all. So people are taking this one size fits all approach and it'll never work. You can't stick those three people in the same room and say, Here, here's, one, here's one piece of paper, figure it out. Nobody's taking into account the real trauma that happens. I'm not excusing why people are in jail or why, whatever. Real shit happens behind those walls. And that has effect on the individual. And that individual's walking out. And the people who are stepping up to help them has no understanding what it's like to wake up every day and waiting to be raped. Waking up every day, waiting for someone to give you an order to go stab somebody. Waking up every day, having the ability to give an order to go stab somebody. This is trauma. And if you don't know who you're talking to, you're most likely going to miss so when these guys are coming home, their program set up by some people with some great thoughts and intentions, but they don't understand the people. They have no understanding of what they've been through and what they're thinking in their modalities. So 89, 90% of the time they get it wrong. Hmm. Loving people is not the issue. It's understanding where they've been and what they've been through and helping them understand and process that. I told the kids when I came home, you're going to jail because you can't process what's happened to you. And that's why you're off track and you're out here. Now you went to jail for 10, 12, 15 years and nobody's taught you how to process that. So wow. you're, you're back at square one times 20. Your process is all messed up. Your, your thoughts is all messed up. And, and it's, just, it's just tough. And that's not including the emotional attachment of having to deal with family and relationships and kids. Just, just walking out into the world is tough. Wow. Wow. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for three hours. Uh, you're just a, a wealth of <laughs> fascinating stories and, and wisdom. Uh, <clears throat> this has been truly mind blowing. I know why I know now why Ben said you got to have Andre on your show. Um, cause this has just been so eye opening. And I, like I said, I feel like we could easily talk for three hours about this stuff. Uh, there's just so much here. <clears throat> and there's a few things I want to say before we go. One, please. I accept things for what they are. And like, hey, well, I mean, I mean, since when George Floyd died, my phone rang off the hook. I had hundreds of my white friends who are CEOs and business leaders and entrepreneurs around the world wanting to know how do they navigate 
social justice in 2020, now 2021. And there's been people who've been helping the black cause or helping inner cities. But now, since they didn't keep a record of it, people are challenging them, talking about you haven't been helpful. And there's people who haven't done anything. They've been minding their business. You're a racist now if you can't finally prove what you've done for black people. And then there's the, okay, well, I did this. Well, it's not enough. I did this. It's not enough. I did this. It's not enough. Then what is enough? Think about this. If you walk down the street and there's a guy outside with change, he got a little cup and he's begging for change. How much is enough to give him? If you give him ten dollars, is that enough? Would he accept more? If you give him a hundred dollars, is that enough? You give him five hundred dollars, is that enough? Give him a thousand dollars, he'll always take more. So right now, you're trying to like give money to the homeless guy, and they're saying it's not enough. Well, well, how much is enough? Nobody knows. You give all your money; it's technically still not enough. Now, if you sit down with the man and find out why he's homeless and what his issues are, and help him fix that, I'm saying it might cost you a thousand times less, but that's enough relationships is what's missing. If you establish a relationship, then you can help hear the person, help fix the person, help redirect the person. So money in a cup is no relationship. So there's never enough. It'll never be enough. So I've told my white companies and friends, simply throwing money into the NAACP college fund, it will never be enough because it's like there's no relationship. You have to have some kind of relationship with the person you're trying to help for it to be meaningful and received. And yeah. minus the relationship being established, it'll never be enough. And you always be called out for not doing enough. So I'm helping them understand how to make connectivity where and create relationships. So it's not about how much money you give, but the intent in which you give and the space in which you give and understanding of what you give. I'm saying, again, it's not so much the money. It's the relationship and the thinking behind the money that matters. And um, I just, I don't want people to act. My number one mentor, is Orthodox George Rabbi. His name is Natan Schaefer. And I met him in jail and he taught me all the premises of re- respect, attentiveness, responsibility, helping people, servanthood. And he taught me how to be human. And no black people wanted to come near me, but this old Jewish guy came and befriended me and he get, he became my counsel. And to this day, he's my number one mentor. And you don't have to be black to be my mentor. You don't have to be from the hood to be my mentor. Just care about me, be consistent, have capacity and have courage. And I'm saying those things matter. So it's like people think, well, what do we need to do? You need to sit down and have a conversation and ask real questions. I'm saying ask real questions of yourself. Ask real questions of people. I went to a baseball game once. It was St. Louis against somebody game six. I had this old white couple from Illinois who came down to watch the game. And we were up there together. And I literally spent seven innings answering every black question they've ever had in their life. They're probably in their seventies. They're like, they're going to die in 20 years. And they have all these questions of why black people do stuff. They never had a chance to ask them. And when they met me, it just turned out to the dynamic. They started asking me those questions. And we sat there for seven innings. I answered every black question they had ever had. Then people kept trying to save me. I said, I'm good. They need to get this off their chest. So there's white people who are listening to this podcast who have questions. They know they do, but they don't know how to ask them. They're scared, uneasy, uncomfortable. And until we start having uncomfortable conversations, it's never going to be fixed. I'm saying I have a friend named Keith Cunningham. He says, until the unspoken is spoken, you can't get a solution. You can't hide the thing that's really bothering you in your heart and think you're going to get it fixed. So you have to have these conversations. You have to own these questions. You have to own your space. And then they say, okay, then we go from there. 
I mean, there's no right. There's no wrong. I'm not here to make you feel bad for being white. I tell people I work with rich white kids. I said, never let anybody make you feel bad for what you have. But you should feel bad if you don't take what you have and do the best with it. You're saying make the most out of it. Don't have all this opportunity and squander it. That's disrespectful. I don't need you to send your toy to the south side of the city. Take your gifts, go to college, open a company, and then hire people. That's what you do. That's how you help the poor. You know what I'm saying? Since you are privileged, use your privilege to open doors down the line. Get your degree. Don't drop out of college. Get your degree. Open a company. Open a law firm to go help people. Dropping out of college is helping nobody. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Get your life yeah. together, then reach, reach out. And stop where you live. There's enough white kids in this country who are suffering it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pro-black, but I, I want all kids to be well. So help the people where you live, and then that'll give you the courage and the wherewithal to reach out beyond that. If you're not helping your own kids, I don't want you helping mine. Because you probably ain't good at it. If you ain't got time to help your own kids, please stay away from mine. You know what I'm saying? Help your kids first. Don't feel bad that you have, you know, I can't do this. It's not politically correct. I don't care about political correctness when it comes to my son. My son comes first. I help him. He's straight. Now I help other kids. If I wasn't helping my own kid, I'd be a hypocrite trying to help somebody else's. So, I mean, I just want people to know we have to accept what is. We have a dual system country that favors white people. And we have some other systems in place that aren't really good, I'm saying, for long-term growth and connectivity amongst people in this country. And they say, let's dismantle some of the BS that's holding it down. We know what it is. We have an educational system that doesn't educate black kids, doesn't educate poor kids. There's kids in rural areas that don't get educated too, who are white. But if you go back to slavery, there was a time as a slave, it was against the law and punishable by death if you learn how to read and write. That's fact. That's when slavery first started. Let's fast forward to 2021. We have 40, 50, 60% dropout rates in so many communities. You're not educating the kids still. We can go get moon rocks from Mars. We can teach a third grader how to read. There has to be a way we can teach a third grader science and math if we can find moon rocks and Mars. We got people flying rocket ships on their own to the moon now. Come on, Elon Musk built his own rocket ship, but we can't teach a third grader how to count? You have to say at some point, this is intentional. Let's fix that. I'm not saying give everybody 40 acres in the mule, but let's give them good public schools. We can teach them how to be educated. Because an educated mind, two things, doesn't need to rob a bank, and you can't enslave an educated mind. So if you educate somebody, they're less likely to rob a bank, sell drugs, or break in your house. But same token, if you educate somebody, now you got to compete against them, and you can't enslave them. And the I'm better than you mentality goes away and the privilege goes away. White privilege is really rooted in the fact of education. You have a, you have a superiority system where education is a defining factor. It's the educated versus uneducated right now. It's not just white, black. And I believe if I could fix one thing, it'd be the public school system. If we fix the public school system where mass majorities of poor people live, and go, we would write this country in two or three generations. And all this turmoil left and right would probably go away. But if we don't educate people, you're going to keep dealing with uneducated people doing uneducated shit, which is not good. And prisons will stay full, drugs will stay full, and treatment centers will stay full because we won't do the basics. Wow. (laughs) Incredible. 
Um, well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the end. Yeah, I'm a Red Sox fan. <laughs> now, before Jay-Z bought in. Yeah. What is it that you think? Well, not Jay-Z, Jay-Z, LeBron brought in. LeBron brought LeBron, in. The okay. I did not know yeah. that. This news yeah, to me. LeBron brought into the Red Sox. Um, what is it that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable? What makes somebody unmistakable? When somebody determines that they love themselves and they invest in themselves and they're not scared to shine and show who they are and what they believe in. That makes somebody unmistakable. When you say, I am okay with me and I'm going to be the best me that I can be in my space. And it doesn't matter where I rank in the world. I'm just going to be the best me that I can be. And I'm going to be free to be myself. That freedom and that acceptance gives other people the ability and power to do the same. And when you accept, you know something, I'm not going to be the number one basketball player in the world. I'm not going to be the number one CEO in the world. I'm not going to be the number one dad in the world, but I can be really efficient and really great in my own space and stop chasing the Joneses or the number one tag. So I tell people I have the number one prison redemption story in the world. And I might do. That's my opinion. But am I the number one dad in the world? No. Am I the number one son in the world? No. Am I the number one poker player in the world? No. So, I mean, there's, most people won't be number one at anything globally. Accept who you are. Embrace who you are. And when you accept that and embrace that, then you can give that to somebody else to do the same. Everybody's trying to be like the number one guy. There's only one room at number one. There's only room for one at number one. That's one. So let's let's be us in in the Bible because I I've, I've since joined a church and I don't beat up people for going to church anymore. Um, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in the Bible, there's a saying they say, "Who is the greatest amongst us?" And it's the servant. So I wake up every day and I say, "Who can I help today?" So yesterday I was in Utah trying to help, not trying, helping a family um, get better and get whole. And a week before that, I was in Hampton, Virginia, doing five days of outreach, helping people get whole. And during when I was in Virginia, I got sick. I went home and spent my two days off in bed, drinking NyQuil and orange juice. And when I got to Utah, they didn't want to hear about me being sick from Virginia. They just wanted me to show up and do my job. I'm in Arizona this week helping people. Next week, I'll be in um, Vegas. And next week, I'll be in Atlanta. And I just wake up every day and I want to help people. And I, I'm happy there. I'm happy there. I don't have millions of Instagram followers. I don't have people banging on my door asking for autographs, but I'm happy with my life. And I have a goal. Harvard fellow, honorable son, last brick. Find a goal. If everybody finds a goal, we have time to we have time not to hate on each other. I can't think of a more fitting way to uh, end our conversation. You have been eye-opening, inspiring, thought-provoking, pretty much everything I thought you would be and so much more. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, um, your work, and everything that you're up to? I mean, if they want to find about me, you can definitely get Personalities and Permanent by Dr. Ben Hardy. Um, If you like (laughs) to read, I'm in that book. There's another book talk about called NR by John O'Leary. Um, he's a great guy to St. Louis. Awesome story. I'm in that book. So if you're a reader, you can get NR by John O'Leary, Personalities and Permanent by Dr. Ben Hardy, or you can buy Ambassador of Hope by Andre Norman. Um, all three are on Amazon. Um, you can go to AndreNorman.com 
And on there, all my social media stuff is there. If you go to Google or YouTube, my name and stuff pops up. And my thing is simple. If there's somebody on this broadcast who's listening, is having problems or struggling, whether you're a mom with three kids or you're a mom and dad with two kids or you're a business owner and you're you're stuck, if they call you, I'm going to put it on you because they're your people. They reach out to you and say, hey, I need to connect with Dre. It's as simple as that. I don't care if you own a Fortune 500 company or you got a bike shop. If you got, if you need help, I help you. That's it. It's, it's not it's not a lot to that. So I, I just want to help people be better. And if you want to help people be better, I can show you. I had a friend yesterday. He says, listen, I'm 70 years old. You're one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life. He wants to sell his company and come hang out with me and help people. <laughs> I was like, cool. That works. I said, sell your company. He's considering selling his company. So, yo, I've had people say it to me over the years. He says, um, I could just hang out with you and do what you do. That'd be great. And there's a guy, one story from Sweden. I went to Sweden. I did a whole 30 day tour in Sweden and one of the coolest guys in the country and one of the richest. I was hanging out with him and I said, um, man, I said, I've always wanted to buy stuff and you're super, super rich and you can buy anything you want. What do you do now? He says, I consolidate my businesses. I don't get rid of them. Then I make sure my kids are okay. And then I go out and I want to learn how to help people. He said, why do you think you're here? I'm learning that from you. I was like, wow, I wanted to be the richest guy in the world. And the richest guy in the world wanted to be like me. So there was nothing wrong with being me is what he told me. He says, being you is actually honorable. So if you want to sell your company or consolidate or come learn how to help people, I'll let your boy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we can use more help on this side. Amazing. Uh, well, I, again, like I said, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. 
Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.